Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us, talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now. My name is Rupert Holmes, and my book is Murder Your Employer. Have you ever had someone in your life who was the bane of your existence? Someone about whom you thought, my life would be much better if this person weren't in it. Rupert Holmes has thought about this and actually created a school which teaches the art of an elegant murder. A finishing school for finishing people off. It's fiction, of course, but it's detailed down to a map of the school campus in Holmes' new novel, Murder Your Employer, The McMaster's Guide to Homicide. In this episode, I speak with the Edgar Award-winning novelist, playwright, and story songwriter Rupert Holmes. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so could you give our listeners a brief description of the book? Let me give you the briefest I can manage. Okay. okay because it, the book is an entire concept, it's an entire world, and it's the first in a series. So it's not easy to sort of say, what is Game of Thrones in one sentence, you know? But uh, my book, Murder Your Employer, is centered around the McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts, which is a um, luxurious, clandestine finishing school for finishing people off. A kind of poison Ivy League college, its location unknown to even its students. And those students are dedicated to the deletion, we don't say murder, the deletion of one despicable someone in their life who richly deserves a fate no worse but no better than death. And the principal focus of this first volume, Murder Your Employer, is on three students, one man, two women, from very different parts of life, walks of life. They're each trying to commit one single elegant murder of someone who is making their lives and the lives of others quite miserable. And the stakes are pretty high for them because if they fail in their master's thesis from the McMaster's Conservatory, which is their single deletion, uh, they themselves, knowing of the existence of McMaster's, have to be deleted themselves and expunged from the honor roll of the school. So did you have any former bosses in mind when you wrote this? Because I guess I'm, I'm wondering about the, the origin of this idea. How did you come up with this? Well, the origin, and we can get onto the bosses uh, <laughs> shortly thereafter, and I'm pleased to at least describe them, if not in every case, name them. But um, I'd written a number of mystery novels, and I was in a bookstore, and I noticed that there was a do-it-yourself book for every subject under the sun. Complete Idiot's Guide to the Talmud to Tattooing, which sounds like a really bad do-it-yourself project, (laughs) Tattooing, and Tiny Houses. And I thought, you know, it's interesting as a mystery writer. I wonder what, if you ever did a Homicide for Dummies book, what would that be like? I thought it was an interesting idea because all of us, I, I assume that all of us at some moment in our lives have said something along the lines of, oh, I could just kill him. Oh, I could just murder them. Now, we don't do anything about it, but but if we take it another step, you get to the thought of, um, gee, I wish I had never met you, or my life would have been so much better if you'd never existed. And if you think in your mind, there's probably every one of your listeners has one person where they think, gee, it would have been better if they had never crossed my path, or anyone else's. Because there are these people that you come to know, and sometimes they're very charming in the beginning, 
and you realize they've never done anyone any good in their lives. It's only about themselves. So if you start to entertain that idea of them never having existed, you're not very far from going from, I could just kill them to, I could just kill them, which is much more reasonable sounding. So I then thought as a book, that might be a fun one-time read, very short read maybe, kind of like the basis of the musical, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, which was a slim volume about just what the title implied. I thought, you know, it, this would be how to, how to murder someone without really dying. And I thought, no, you know what? I don't want to write that book because that's a fun book on a small binding and then you're done. But I thought about the idea of something larger. I really was at the point in my writing that I wanted to create a world that does not currently exist and make it a wonderful, dreamy world. This was also, by the way, peaked with the lockdowns of uh, COVID. And so the final last writing of the book was in a time when we all wished we could open a door and step outside into another world where everything was beautiful. And so I'd started to construct in my mind over the course of many years, this McMaster's Conservatory for the Applied Arts. And I wanted to make it a place you would love to go on a retreat to, spend two weeks there. I made sure that the cuisine there, they have a, a secret three-star rating from the Guide Michelin. Uh, the accommodations are terrific. It's a tranquil, idyllic setting, a perfect backdrop for Skullduggar's doings. And then I realized that it, the best way that I could um, help a reader into this world and through it would be to follow the path of, say, three students and try to make them from different ages and walks of life enough that any reader could identify with at least one of them and then follow them for the first half of the book through their education at McMaster's, which is quite a fun, if challenging experience. You're always at peril because you're always subject to the efforts of your classmates to do you in right up until the point of actually committing the crime. So you're always living a little on the brink and having to wonder which person has the knife ready to almost stab in your back. But all the fun activities of a college. And then what I thought would be interesting was halfway through the book, each student has to go out back into the real world where their real target is and where there are things like police and district attorneys, people who don't think that murdering this one person is necessarily a good idea or that you should be able to get away with it. And to follow how their education at McMaster's made it possible for them to achieve their McMaster's thesis. But you are told from the outset of the book that at least one of them will not succeed. So you never really lose the suspense because you have a murderer who knows that if they fail, they will be murdered. And you also have the knowledge that one of these three people will not succeed. Even though it's a humorous book, God knows, I, I, I tried to make sure that there was something entertaining on every page. It gets suspenseful the way that North by Northwest by Hitchcock, that, that's got such wonderful fun moments in it. But when Cary Grant is hanging off a cliff of Mount Rushmore, and Eva Marie Saint is hanging off Cary Grant, even further closer to the bottom of the chasm. You're not thinking, this is a funny movie. You're thinking, I hope they survive this. Now, I understand that this book has been 16 years in the making. Is that right? 
um, I I would be more honest to say 12. That's such a much smaller number <laughs> in writing a book. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the last several we, we, we were finishing up during the pandemic yeah. and, and several yeah. of those years were imagining this world. But how would you describe those 12 years? Were, were they methodical? Were you outlining plot and character development? Or how would you describe those 12 years of working on this? Basically, and by the way, I was doing lots of other things in those 12 years. <laughs> uh, I wrote many musicals on Broadway and some short stories, but it was always this ongoing major project. This might be the grandest thing I've ever done. And certainly since it's a series and I'm already more than halfway through the second volume, it's pretty expansive in its work. But it took a long time for me to create two things. As you know, if you look at the book, the end pages for the book, if you open them, you'll see this beautiful map of the McMaster's campus, very detailed. It was created by a collaborator of mine, Anna Luizos, who was the scenic designer for two of my Broadway musicals, the murder mystery musical Curtains and the mystery of Edwin Drew, the a Broadway musical won the Tony Award, where the audience voted on who the murderer was every night. So that particular project of mine, that musical, is spoiler-proof, because even I don't know at any given performance who is the killer. So Anna came in, and we sat, and I went over every location in the novel and described some sections that are going to be in later novels that aren't mentioned in this one. And she drew this gorgeous map of the entire campus. Well, that was, you know, six, seven years in the making. I wanted it to be a world where if you're lucky enough to be considering going to college and you visit a campus, there's always some student, some really squeaky clean student, the pride of the dean's office, who's picked to show you around the campus and convince you what a wonderful place it would be to attend. And you go with this this dream student. And then they say, now, let me show you here. And we all often have merry times here. So I wanted to be able to be that student who could take you on a guided tour of any part of this campus and know exactly where it was. I'd had the same experience in my previous novel, Swing, where I had to recreate a world I had never known, which was the 1939 Golden Gate International Exposition, which was on an island built for that purpose in the San Francisco Bay. And I spent two and a half years researching it so that I could live in that world as I told my story in that world. Well, in this one, I had to not only research the campus, but invent it as well. And that took a lot of time. And it was pure pleasure. And I like to think that pleasure comes through in the book because obviously I enjoy being there. And I'm hoping that the reader is uh, having a good time there as well. Then the other thing was I had to think of what is the curriculum? You try to invent an entire college's curriculum, start to think of the courses that they would have. In the math department, there's one, I'm trying to remember these off the top of my head. Time is relative when you're killing one, killing a relative. So, And I started to think, okay, so language courses, penmanship. Uh, there's even a course dedicated uh, to eroticide, which acknowledges that Cupid's armed with arrows. And so various elements of romance and seduction, jealousy can be very helpful tools in the art of murder. Uh, the fun thing I liked about eroticide is I decided that, that McMaster's had to make it a mandatory course for while women were perfectly willing to attend, most men thought they knew all they had to know about. <laughs> that part made me laugh in the book as well. I do want to talk about 
perspective a bit because we get the first person account from Cliff Iverson's journal and we learn other storylines like Gemma's and Dulcie's through what the narrator actually tells us is an anonymous third person narration. So how how was this shift in perspective as you wrote it? Was it written as a through line with you having to outline who knew what and through what lens or or how did that work for you as you wrote it? Well, that's a very good understanding of a writer's methodology. Sometimes what seems like something that just floated onto the page has been really thought through and you have to continually um, keep perspective in mind. One of the fascinating things about writing mysteries is that you can never give an account of two people alone in a room together who might be murder suspects. Because if they think they're alone in the room, one can turn to the other and say, I think this is going pretty well. Don't you, this murder we're doing? So you have to be very careful. You can't say these two people can't be alone and talk because if one of them is the killer. And so there are a number of reasons I chose the method I did for telling the story. The narration is, yes, in an omniscient third person. But in point of fact, the narrator, the third person narrator is Dean Harbinger Harrow, the dean of McMaster's and a character in the story who knows all three students. They're favorite students of his. And the book opens as if this is going to be a textbook. And there's an introduction where Dean Harbinger Harrow addresses you directly and explains what McMaster's is, the methodology, and some of the ethical rules of the school. And then he conveys that he thinks the best way to take you through the methodology is to follow in the footsteps of students and learn what they learned. And so it quickly becomes an adventure story, a suspense story, a mystery story, uh, rather than anything resembling a textbook. But in the first, in the introduction where he talks in the first person, he says, bear in mind that hereafter, I will be cloaking my normally ebullient personality within the guise of an anonymous third person narrator, though I would be the first person to cry, tis I, given half the chance. On those occasions where my narrative may seem to stray into the omniscient, revealing the inner thoughts or private moments of others, which I could scarcely have witnessed firsthand, rest assured, I am most frequently drawing upon both the shared confidences of those directly involved, often in my role as their faculty advisor, and the incisive reports of the conservatory's recruiting and field agents. And where I write about those most odious to the McMaster's uh, worldview, I will attempt to disguise my personal disdain by speaking in as academically detached a manner as I can sustain. So there is a bridge between the dean addressing you in the first person at the beginning of the book and this anonymous third-person narrator who actually was there for many of the scenes. He just continues to be in the third person. However, I thought it would be more exciting, more gripping, and more, and, and by the way, age suspense, if we could hear at least from one student in the first person in real time as they are experiencing this. So I decided that one of the protagonists, Cliff Iverson, is obliged to keep a journal, a first-person journal of his time at McMaster's. Why? Because he, unlike all the other students, is a sponsored student. He did not know about McMaster's before he was sort of, um, I'm not going to say kidnapped, but taken there. At the beginning of the book, he commits what he thinks is a magnificent murder and finds out it's a completely inept one. And by the way, he failed miserably and his victim is still well alive and kicking. Just when the police might have arrested him for the attempt, 
the faux police of McMaster's arrive and spirit him off to McMaster's. And he learns that he is there as a sponsored student. Someone is paying the considerable tuition for him to attend. Someone who has a vested interest in him becoming proficient at getting another person off this planet well-dispatched. Just as you have these commercials saying, if you sponsor a child, you will receive a letter every month from them telling you how they're doing and how well your money is being invested. Well, he has to do the same thing. He has to keep a journal that is going to be sent to his sponsor to say, look where your money is going and look how I'm doing. So that meant we got to switch between uh, this traditional third-person narrative, which can know all things and what's going on in two different locations at the same time, to a person who's experiencing it in real time, completely bewildered, who in the beginning is not that happy that they are trapped in this uh, university where if they fail, they're going to be the victim. So it allowed me to toggle between two different viewpoints. And on the audio book that we have, we have the very British and elegant Simon Vance, uh, who does great Sherlock Holmes editions and uh, Dickens. He is both the dean and the narrator. But when we go into the first person narrative, the character of Cliff Iverson in the first person is voiced by the wonderful actor uh, Neil Patrick Harris. And I love the change in tone because you go from this very wonderful uh, Agatha Christie type narrator to a pluckish American who is quite bewildered about what's happening around him. So I thought it, it was a nice way to refresh the story and yet also let you live other lives outside of this one character's life. You created this different world, but it's also set in a different time from where we are now. There are no conveniences of the modern world today. Does that make these murders easier to accomplish without state-of-the-art forensics and such? Yeah, you've hit on a wonderful point. And you're right in the driver's seat where the author was concerned. I don't think that people could get away with murder so easily, these murders, now. So I knew from the outset that I would want to make this a period piece set in the 50s. I wanted to write it where there was no cell phone, where there was no CSI, in a very analog world where the use of a, a telephone can be a murder weapon, a turntable, a record turntable can be a murder weapon. And then there was another reason for it, which is that murder, real murder, is a serious thing. And all the people in this book, if this all took place in 1950, then most of the people in this book are no longer with us in the present day. And it makes, it makes you feel like, well, they would have been dead by now anyway. So it detached us a little. Let me play with the fantasy of this McMaster's campus and murdering your employer. Also, I happen to love writing in period. And I have just the dimmest memory of the early 50s and what that was like. We had one of the first TV sets on our block. So I'm able to kind of go back to my childhood and, and create that world uh, here as well. You know, I do want to touch a little bit on this fantasy versus reality, because I was reading this book at the same time. I was editing some commentary our news director wrote about the recent mass shooting at Michigan State University. And and he saw it described in the media as a, quote, unquote, senseless murder. And his question was, as opposed to what? You know, the murderers or would-be murderers in this book are, are described as, as well-intentioned. Each are encouraged to ask themselves if the murder is necessary, if the targets have had a chance to redeem themselves, 
if innocent people might suffer, and if lives will be improved. And I liked earlier you described these as, you know, elegant murders. I know this book is fiction, and it's meant to be, you know, a little bit nonsensical, but I'm wondering if you've received any pushback because of the topic. Yes, someone asked me to sign a petition to take down a statue of Agatha Christie because she killed so many people in the mystery and then there were none. It's shocking that this woman should be honored when she has caused death after death on the ABC murders and 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 murder on the Orient Express. My God, that was so I have to kind of draw a line there. I mean, the first book of the Bible has a murder in it. And if we're going to say that that gave everyone the idea to commit a murder and do something about it, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where we'd be. Murder mysteries are actually usually very moral books. And I make a big deal in the book about those four inquiries that you listed, the answers you have to ask yourself before you can even be allowed to study at McMaster's. McMaster's takes a high moral tone, very ethical school. Um, you are not allowed to commit a murder for profit, for revenge, if an innocent bystander is in any way harmed, that happens early on in the book where someone proposes a murder and he says, but you're risking the lives of other people. That's that's intolerable. And they're immediately threatened with expulsion, which means the ultimate expulsion. So they take this crime seriously. The dean points out murder is a life-changing event, not the least for your victim. Uh, so you can't take it lightly. There, this is a serious stuff. Serious stuff within a book that is fantasy. And by the way, some of the great detectives of all time saw fit to forgive murderers because they felt the murder was justified. I don't know if you, I don't want to, I'm not going to give away anything. I'm going to even be careful about my pronouns here, but Murder on the Orient Express, one of the greatest mysteries ever written. Hercule Poirot allows the murder to go away unpunished. Uh, Sherlock Holmes several times turned his back and said, nope, not going to pursue this one. That person was justified in what they did. So I think within layers and layers and layers of the conceits of different mystery stories and the world of McMaster's and the idea of murder your employer, but nobody else and that employer better have it coming. And if you break those rules, then you yourself will face the ultimate punishment. I feel okay. I think it's okay. And I think it's okay to enjoy the book and, and escape into that book when the headlines are so dreadful and a nightmare that no fiction writer would ever dare conceive. Book one, Murder Your Employer, it's labeled as book one. Do you have any idea how many books there will be in the series? And you said you're, you're more than halfway through writing book two. Can you give us a, a teaser for that one? Yes, I, I intend to write one book a year for the next 26 years. And that at 101, I intend to lay down my pen. Um, I know what the next two, so I know the first three, and I have some good ideas about four and five. I'm almost all the way through volume two. The volume after Murder Your Employer has the controversial title Murder Your Mate. And the word mate can mean many different things, and it does in this book. And once again, I try to make it that you are sympathetic with the people who are trying to commit this. It is not a matter of just getting a divorce the easy way with a piano wire across the top of the stairs. And the victims need to be people that you think, boy, that would be better off if these people weren't around. And in one case, 
the efforts of the school are at stopping a murder attempt of one of their own students who misrepresented what his intent was. And so it becomes a, a mission to prevent the murder of someone who doesn't deserve it. Okay, so today we're talking about your book, but you've been described as a, a true Renaissance man, and your publisher has touted many of your accomplishments, you know, including the musicals you've written, the the books you've written, and, and you know, also the fact that you wrote and performed Escape, which is better known as the Pina Colada song. Earlier this week, I, I saw a tweet from Beth Ann Patrick who mentioned that she had just finished an interview with you, and she was proud that she didn't even bring up your connection to Escape. So I'm just curious, are you disappointed when you're not asked about it, or would you rather not talk about it? Um, you know, my favorite thing to talk about right now is Murder Your Employer. It took me years and years and years to write. Tremendous amount of research. It's uh, on a literary level. I like to believe um, that it, it goes beyond a pop tune. <laughs> but let me also say this, okay? I mean, it took me 12 years to write Murder Your Employer. It took me one hour to write the lyric of Escape, the Pina Colada song. Some people think I should have taken two hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but here's the thing. I get the feeling that no matter what I do with my life, I've got Tony Awards. As a, I was the first person to get a Tony Award as a book writer, meaning the script of the play, the lyrics of the musical, the music of the musical. I got a drama desk for best orchestration. I've done a lot of things that of which I'm very proud. And there are times when I think that it always comes back to the Pina Colada song and that that people picture going to my grave and my tombstone will be in the shape of a giant pineapple. Uh, but at the same time, as I've gotten older, and as the song continues over 40 years since it's hitting number one on the Billboard charts, to be around and heard, it's in, in movie, every other movie I see um, and on TV, um, I, I've come to grow fond of it. The thing that's really rewarding for me is that when I sing the song for people or when I hear them hearing it for the first time or the first time in a long time, their face lights up, they get a smile. Kind of, and I realize that they're smiling, not necessarily just because they say, oh, well, wasn't that a nice song? But rather they're, I'm taking, I'm catapulting them back to some moment in their lives that they associate with hearing that song. Some summer, some date, some person, some store, some car trip. And they're remembering their past. And I've gotten to be kind of a bookmark in their life. And I, I've gotten this, that song has been a bookmark in the life of, I mean, the numbers, I, I can read the numbers. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people I've never met, and yet I get to be a bookmark in their life. I've always felt that, that, uh, that that's as great a privilege as any human being could have. So I find it hard to get restless about mention of the Pina Colada song, only because it was a, it's a, a, my passport, my visa into someone else's life. And maybe they'll read Murder Your Employer because I was responsible for one good time in their life, maybe, maybe, I'll give them 400 pages of a good time, you know. The book is Murder Your Employer, Rupert Holmes. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That was Rupert Holmes, author of the book Murder Your Employer, which was published by Avid Reader Press. 
Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>